I invite you this morning uh, to turn again with me to the book of Job. We are in the 23rd chapter this morning. Job chapter 23, verses 1 through 9, and then verses 16 and 17. And if you're with us and able this morning, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Job 23. Job answered, today my complaint is again bitter. My strength is weighed down because of my groaning. Oh, that I could know how to find him, come to his dwelling place. I would lay out my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments, know the words with which he would answer, understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me through brute force? No, he would surely listen to me. There, those who do the right thing can argue with him. I could escape from my judge forever. But look, I go east and he's not there. West and don't discover him. North in his activity and I don't grasp him. He turns south and I don't see. Verse 16. God has weakened my mind. The Almighty has frightened me. Still, I'm not annihilated by darkness. He has hidden deep darkness from me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So probably for for most of you, um, when we talk about the text for today, that's become familiar language. But for maybe a few of you that it's not yet, For the last few years, we have been using um, the lectionary, um, in particular the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a set of texts for each Sunday um, based on a kind of three-year cycle. We're actually in the second year. We're in year B. Uh, We just have a few weeks left until we get into Advent and we'll transition into year C and then we'll be there a year and go back to year A, etc., The idea of reading from the lectionary is kind of based on a couple of things. The idea would be, um, and we do this in our early morning service, and here uh, we didn't have time to read the gospel text this morning that actually comes from the gospel of Mark, but, but we've heard three texts read this morning in worship. And the idea is that by the time, if you came to church every Sunday, and that's a, a bit of an if, but if you were here every Sunday for, for three years, you would have heard almost the entire scripture read in a three-year cycle. Um, and there's something profound about that. There's something, something good about that. The other thing that's really helpful about the lectionary is that um, in many ways it forces us to go to places that we wouldn't normally go. Um, if I got to pick each week what text we were going to preach from, pretty much we'd be in Exodus week after week, right? Like we'd be, and I find a way to work it back around there anyway. But um, we'd probably be in Exodus and Mark and Revelation. Those three books would just fall out of our Bibles. And it's funny, I joke that, I think I've told you a really great gift my family gave me, my dad's dad's preaching Bible, um, which is an old King James Bible because it was good for Paul and Silas and it's good enough for him. But, uh, but when you open my grandfather's preaching Bible, the Gospel of John, he loved the Gospel of John, it just falls on the floor. It's held together with rusty paper clips. But as I've joked, as I've looked through his Bible, I hope you can get to heaven without ever having read or preached on Leviticus, Habakkuk. Because um, there are major sections of the Bible that still have the new Bible smell in his Bible. Um, 
And so one of the, the things that is nice about the lectionary is I don't think if I had ever been able to choose a text, I would choose Job 23, certainly, the text in front of us this morning. And so the nice thing is it kind of forces us to go to some places and wrestle with some texts. But even there, there's a kind of weakness to it, if, if I can be honest with you. And that is, we get four weeks in Job, and last week we were in Job 1 and 2, kind of setting up the whole book. But now we skip all the way to chapter 23, and the next couple of weeks we're going to skip all the way to the end. And we kind of miss the major section, for the most part, of Job, which is actually chapters 3 through 31. And chapters 3 through 31 is a conversation between Job and three friends. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And if you ever had to take intro to philosophy somewhere back in college, you know that many of the philosophical, especially ancient philosophical works, in particular Plato, came in dialogue form. So part of what's challenging about reading Plato is he doesn't just say, I want to talk about the forms and here's what I think about them. Instead, he writes this really long treatise. That is a conversation between he and some friends and his friends kind of typify various points of views and they have this long dialogue and you have to kind of work through all these dialogues to get to what is Plato trying to say here. And in many ways, Job is very similar kinds of literature. Eliphaz steps onto the stage, if you will, for a couple of chapters, sees Job in his suffering and starts to kind of pontificate to Job about all the reasons why he is suffering. And then Job responds to Eliphaz. And then Bildad will say, well, you didn't really listen to Eliphaz, so let me talk a bit. And so for a couple of chapters, Bildad will talk, and then Job will respond to Bildad. And then Zophar will step in and say, well, I've got a few things to say too. And Zophar then will talk for a chapter or two, and then Job will respond to him. Now, chapters 3 through 31 are basically three cycles of that. His three friends having a set of three conversations with him. And each time they are trying to say things that they think will be helpful to Job, will get him back on the right path that he's clearly not on. And each time Job is saying, wait a minute, I think I'm okay. <laughs> like, I don't know why I'm here, but it's not for the reasons that you are saying. And they constantly kind of have this argument. So our text today actually comes sort of towards the tail end of that section, 3 through 31. And it comes in chapter 23 in the third response to Eliphaz, where Job is basically saying this, listen, I get it, I get it, I get it. But right now, I just want to sue God. Can you do that? Can I sue God? Can I take God to court? Is there a lawyer who will represent me? Is there somebody, like, I'm looking for God. I'm trying to, I'm trying to serve him uh, with a with an affidavit to come, I'm, I'm trying to get him to show up in front of me to come and I want to summons him because I feel like if I could lay out my case, God would justify me both before you, but also before God. And so if I could just find him and I've gone north and I can't find him, I've gone south, he's not there, east and west, I can't discover him anywhere. And so if he would just show up and speak, then I would be justified. Now back to the lectionary. What, what's so interesting in skipping all of this text, and, and as I was working uh, for the last couple of weeks on the sermon for today, I realized that there's a kind of language that the, that the lectionary skips over more often than not. 
it skips over it, not just because it's complicated, which this certainly is, but it skips over it because it's what I'll call this morning a language of disorientation. The scripture has a lot of language of disorientation. I've been thinking a lot, as all of you have too, about the uniqueness of this time period. I hope at some point it's not what it is today. But we're going on 19 months now of this time of disruption. I know that ministry as well as a lot of other things, if not most other things in our life, will be very different when this 19 or however long this period lasts, will be very different at the end of it than it is now. And so I'm, I'm recognizing the sort of disruption that I feel in my own life and we all kind of feel in our lives. But I've realized, and maybe you have too, in watching how I behave and we behave in this time period, we don't really have a language that has helped us deal with the disorientation that we feel. And so at various levels and various aspects of our culture, we feel, and, and hopefully I'll just talk about myself, we feel in our own spirit real frustration, a complete lack of patience, and even if nothing has changed, I'm going to act like it has. Culturally, that means we get mad at each other. People that we uh, loved and honored at the beginning of this, in particular folks like our medical personnel and others, now get treated with frustration and oftentimes um, just outright anger. And I think part of it is because we haven't learned well the language of disorientation. And the scripture is trying to give that to us, but we kind of treat it like flyover material. Let me give you one other example. Almost a third of the 150 psalms, almost 50 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. Psalms, of, they're songs of disorientation. We really only look at one of them or have one of them read in that cycle of texts that get read. And it's, and it's Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we have to read that one because Jesus forces it on us, right? We don't really like the Psalms of disorientation. We don't know what to do with them. Part of the way I try to make sure we hear a Psalm each week is make it, I, I'll write the calls to worship and make them part of the calls to worship. And it's much more fun if they are psalms of praise, right? I was glad when they said to us, let us go. And then you respond, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's much more fun to be called to worship that way. If you were paying attention this morning, by the way, there was a little disorientation in the psalm for today on purpose. It was a lovely psalm. We just said, at some point, God's going to blow us all away. Um, and you said, thanks be to God. Um, it was beautiful. But we don't really know what to do with this language of disorientation. And so this morning, I, I want to think about this language and what Job 3 through 31 is trying to teach us and, and how we can wrestle with what the friends are trying to say to Job and ways that we can learn then the partial truth of what they have to say, but also the grain of untruth that they speak that actually is not helpful to Job, but actually furthers Job's suffering. 
So this week I, I read through, I tried to read through the whole book of Job each day. Um, I've been reading through the message in my own devi- devotionals and devotional life. So I, I read through the message. And so as I read the sections, the speeches from Eliphaz and from Bildad and from Zophar, I pulled out a couple of sayings from each one that I think that spoke to me enough that I had underlined them and starred them a bit. And, and I am even going to give to you uh, kind of my own version of them today. And so Eliphaz, in the fourth chapter of Job, this is verses 7 and 8, says this. Think, has a truly innocent person ever ended up on the scrap heap? Do genuinely upright people ever lose out in the end? It's my observation that those who plow evil and sow trouble reap evil and trouble. My version of that is this. Oh, it's terribly sad. And I put in parentheses, God bless them. I think I've taught you the secret. It's my favorite church line. If you say, oh, God bless them, you can say whatever you want to after that. It's terribly sad, God bless them, but people eventually get what's coming to them. Most of chapters 3 through 31 is that theme repeated over and over again. In some ways, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they embody the wisdom tradition. We thought about this a couple weeks ago with Proverbs. Proverbs has a tendency to say, if you do these things, good things will come. And if you do these things, bad things will come. And by the way, there is a grain of truth to that, enough for a whole book to be devoted to it. Some would argue even the ways in which the, the history of Israel and Judah is told through what's called the deuterohistoric tradition, it tells it in that kind of framework. If we have a good king who does good things, good things come to us. But if we have a bad king, Manasseh, bad things come to us. But a good king, Josiah, good things come. But bad kings, Ahab, bad things come. But Job sort of sits there to remind us there is a important grain of truth to that, but there is also a grain that's not true of that. For Job does everything. Um, If we do this, we get this out. If we do that, we get that out. And Job has done this and got that out. Eliphaz also says, chapter 15, I love this one, gray beards and white hair back us up. We old folks who've been around a lot longer than you, Job, Are God's promises not enough for you, spoken so gently and tenderly? My version of this is things were much more difficult in my day. God bless them. We survive challenges and they will survive too. (laughs) Part of the reason I think I circled that one for a couple of reasons. Especially... um, in ministry, there have been, it seems like in every church, one or two folks with, with gray or no hair um, who will love to pull you aside and say something like this to, to me, bless you. Um, but you know, your generation is just really selfish. Our generation lived through the depression. That's why we're so good. We had real difficulties. We we have lived through some real heartbreaks and challenges. And your, your generation's problem is you just haven't had enough difficulties. And I always want to say, that's partly true. 
we could use some challenges, like let's say a 19-month pandemic. Um, we could use some challenges. But it's not helping me. <laughs> it's not helping me with my four screaming kids. It's not helping me with the housing market that I'm trying to get into. It's not helping me with my two-income family that we're now running every different direction to kind of try to keep our life afloat. It's not helping me with a church full of consumers who keep telling me that I haven't faced enough challenges. The other reason I love that statement is I'm now 55 and my forehead's getting bigger and the sides are getting grayer. And I find myself saying to students all the time, well, in my day, we had some really serious challenges. <laughs> I mean, you kids and your fancy technology, you, you have nothing, right? There's a little Eliphaz in all of us. Or maybe a lot. Bildad comes along, this is the eighth chapter, and says to Job, does God mess up? Does God Almighty ever get things backwards? It's plain that your children sinned against him. Otherwise, why would God have punished them? The sooner the godless are gone, the better. Because then good plants can take their place and grow in their place. I couldn't help but hear in that language things that we will often say about folks like refugees and others, often from other places, or maybe from parts of our community that we don't associate with us. And we say things like this, their cultures and systems are so much more corrupt than our own. There's just no helping such backward people. As though somehow those who are broken by those systems and whose life has been largely damaged and taken away from those systems, had a whole lot of choices. And, and as though others, in not perfect, but perhaps healthier systems, can take full credit for how they lived into the blessing of that system. There's a grain of truth to that, but there is an unbelievable amount of failure at self-reflection and understanding and certainly empathy with those who are hurting. Or in chapter 18, he'll say, here's the rule. The light of the wicked is put out. Their flame dies down and is extinguished. Their house goes dark. Every lamp in the place goes out. My version of this is, I knew they were hiding something. They've had so many good things in life. It's about time they experience some humility. I find it fascinating for us as a culture how much we delight in knowing the details of the destruction that others experience. Especially if we felt like they were getting a little too much success in the first place. Though it is certainly a grain of truth that all of us try to hide things from God and others. And those things aren't fully hidden. There's also a grain of truth to the reality that 
that sometimes those come bursting out into our lives in ways that are so dramatic and so disorienting that most look on in shame and blame. Zophar, chapter 11, says to Job, do you think you can explain the mystery of God? Do you think you can diagram God Almighty? God is far higher than you can imagine, Job, far deeper than you can comprehend. Zophar's line reminded me of one that I have heard so many times standing with people who grieve as good and faithful come by and say to them, well, Job, it's a mystery. We know that God has a plan in this. And please hear me say, there is a grain of truth in that. But so often I have wanted, when I hear that said to others or even to myself, I've wanted to say, surely God can come up with a plan that doesn't include the death of so many children. Certainly the God who created all things can come up with a pandemic-free plan. Zophar in chapter 27 says, this is how God treats the wicked. This is what evil people can expect from God Almighty. Their children, all of them will die violent deaths. They'll never have enough bread to put on the table. They'll be wiped out by the plague and none of the widows shall shed a tear when they're gone. It's frankly kind of an awful thing to say, but it sounds a bit like saying something like this. Perhaps their end was merciful. Perhaps it's best for everyone involved. And again, I want to say, Zophar is partly right. There are moments where, where in our lives, the end of suffering comes as an act of mercy. But for those who remain to weep and grieve, even to acknowledge a small ounce of mercy does not remove the sense of pain and loneliness and hurt and disorientation and shatteredness that we still feel. And so each friend comes and tells Job how Job should feel, how Job should react, how Job should think, how Job should repent so everything would be back to normal. I don't want to ruin the end of the story because we're going to get there. But when the lectionary takes us to Job chapter 42, it actually skips a couple of verses that I want to point out. In verse 7, God finally shows up. Shh, don't tell anybody. But Job, who wants to drag God to court, God finally shows up. And Job 42, verse 7 says this, after God had finished addressing Job, he turned to Eliphaz the Temanite and said, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me, nor the way my friend Job has lived and responded and lamented. Yes. 
Perhaps this morning, as we wrestle with this flyover, hurry through 29 chapters of disorientation and conversation, perhaps this morning what we can take from it is this. That the dialogues, the conversations that Job's friends have with him are maybe an invitation for us as God's people to suspend judgment as we deal with the hurts and brokenness and disorientation in the lives of one another. Did you hear that? Would you take some notes on that? (laughs) Perhaps what the text does is it invites us as we live together and experience the brokenness in each other's lives to be willing to suspend a bit of judgment at why we end up in those places of brokenness and disorientation. And instead be willing to enter into them. The biggest mistake Job's friends make is this. Job's friends never make the move from speaking about God to speaking to God. As one of my favorite commentators said this week, in a time in his life where Job needed three friends, he got three theologians. Nobody needs that. They give Job ample advice about how he should respond in suffering. They claim even to speak for God, but they never once speak to God. They never once intercede for their suffering friend. They they never join in the laments of Job. And perhaps that's what A third of the Psalms are trying desperately to teach us to have a language so that when we enter into moments of disorientation, we have a language that we can speak to God and to each other. A language of prayer, a language of concern, a language that moves us from theologizing to being a theological presence. In the New Testament, there are moments in Jesus' life where he encounters brokenness and there are small prayers of lament that are prayed. A couple weeks ago, I, I preached about Esther and I talked about provenient grace, this idea that as we go into the world, we know that God is already active there. But it's very interesting, as Jesus walked through his ministry, there were moments In particular, the one that comes to mind is as Jesus is getting ready to head on the road to Jerusalem, Bartimaeus cries out a short prayer of lament. Lord, have mercy upon me. And it is that cry, it is that prayer of lament that Bartimaeus Praise that actually enacts the very presence of God in Jesus into Bartimaeus' life. It is that cry of the absence of God that invites the presence of God into the brokenness of Bartimaeus. The epistle text that was read for us by Riley a little while ago, Hebrews 4. 
It's a fascinating text. The writer says, the word of God is active. In fact, the common English Bible is a bit common. It says it's so active. What it does is it exposes us. It makes us naked. Makes us naked before it. There's no way to walk in the language of God. There's no way to walk in the language of relationship with God without eventually our motives, our hearts, the realities of our life, either through joy or through suffering, either through blessing or through times of darkness to be exposed. But the writer says, but we have a high priest. Wow. We have a high priest. Awesome. So we can run to the temple. We can run to the high priest and get the answers we want to both understand our disorientation and to get us out of it. Oh, I wish that's what the writer wrote. The writer says we have a high priest who we can be confident to cry out to. Not because the high priest has a whole slideshow with great PowerPoints on why suffering happens and how to get us out of it. But we have a high priest who has suffered with us, who is present with us, and who invites us to be present with each other. I don't remember a lot of sermons in my life. I've shared that with you before, even mine. I can't even remember. What was last week? Something about Job. There are a couple I remember vividly. Probably the one I remember most because it made me so uncomfortable. I think I've shared with you, I I was a worship pastor at Oklahoma City first while I was on faculty at, at SNU. The pastor was my friend Steve Green, who uh, was also on faculty, but was pastor of the church. The text uh, for the morning was the text where Elijah heals the widow's son, comes back, and the widow says, my son has died. And without even responding, Elijah just goes up to the bedroom, crawls on the bed, puts his hands on the boy's hands, his body on the boy's body, his face on the boy's face, and breathes life back into him. Steve read the text that morning and then he just started walking around. He said, smells like death in here this morning. Can you smell it? Smells like death. He goes, I mean, it's not, I mean, you showered. Thank you. There's some perfume, a little bit of polo on some guys. But it still smells like death, doesn't it? He thought about it and prepared enough that he knew who would be there that morning. He started walking around and kind of one by one telling stories of people who were in places of disorientation, loss. Lost jobs, broken relationships, death of a spouse. A prodigal breaking their heart. He just went person by person talking about just all of the death that was present in the room that day. 
as Pastor Diane so, said so beautifully last week in pastoral prayer, he, he said too, you know, we, we come today not because everything's okay. And we don't come today and believe that we have to leave everything at the door and then come in. But God invites us to bring those things with us, to bring them in with us, our, our burdens, our, our brokenness, our disorientation, our deathliness. We bring it here. But we bring it here not because we know that there will be answers to the questions so much as we know that Christ is present with us. And even when we're not sure Christ is here, he used the text to say, we are here as the body of Christ to put hand on hand, flesh on flesh, face to face, and to breathe the ruach, the breath, the spirit of God into one another to sustain and to give life. I'll just never forget that moment, that morning of just honesty and vulnerability and disorientation met not with answers, but with the presence of God and of the people. And so this morning, as we walk through this time of disorientation, as we try to figure out what this means for us and the challenges and the heartbreaks and the loss that we experience, Moments where if we are honest, we have gone north and south and east and west, and it doesn't seem that we are able to find God. I love that Job says at the end of the text, but somehow in this darkness that I cannot see God, I know he has not abandoned me to the darkness. That's the part I know. I don't know if it's the faith of Job we honor so much. It's just his tenacity. He's, so, he's such a good Jewish person. Like Jacob just deciding, I'm going to wrestle with God until I get a new name out of this and I may limp for the rest of my life, but I'm not giving up. And this morning you may be with us online or you may be in this place needing answers and the preacher didn't give you any. In fact, he told most of your friends, don't say that stuff, it's not helpful. but you tenaciously believe that God is present and God's people are present. Not to lecture, because the last thing you need is a room full of theologians. What you need is a room full of people to be the presence of Christ in this moment. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I'd fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. My righteousness, 
sing just our voices one more verse of that and I would just invite you if you're online maybe just simply to type Lord I need you if you're with us this morning maybe coming to an altar with the burden that you carry today is a way of crying out and lament to God or maybe just standing where you are, being willing to acknowledge in a body that's not just learning how to laugh with each other, but also to grieve with each other. Um, it's just simply a way to call out to God and to your friends, I don't need theology today, but I do need God's presence in the midst of a darkness that seems overwhelming. I'd invite you to do that this morning. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Grace is found is where you are. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ. This morning, and where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. pray for us, but I invite some of you who are around those who just stood, if you would just kind of gather around them and stand around them in support and prayer this morning. God, we come and confess. There are many of us today who, who need a rest, a peace, a shalom that can only come from you. Have, have mercy on us. Forgive us for our PowerPoints and our theologizings. 
We are, we are better at lecturing, tisking, shaming with a smile on our face. than we are at sitting down next to Job on the heap of ash and putting our arms around and, and hollering and yelling to you to come. To come, come on. Meet Job in his place of of hurt and despair. I pray for those who have been brave enough, both online and present today, to say, Lord, I need you in this moment, and I'm here. Because even though I can't see or feel you in the moment, I am convinced that you are present and that darkness does not get the last word, but today it sure feels like it. And so today, God, help us. Um, help us to be a source of presence, a source of care, a source of concern, but, but also may you in your unique way as you did for Job, would you respond to them? And as we'll see, um, it may not answer all the questions Job brings. But it is met by the mystery of a high priest who has gone to the places of forsakenness, so now there is no place called forsaken because you are there and have the ability and the power to make all things new. I, I pray for us as a, as a church, as a community, this time of disruption that continues to feel increasing like a time of disorientation. And, and I confess today, I, there are moments where I not only don't know what to do next, I don't know if I have the ability to do what is ever next, whatever that is. Be present and be our hope and bring peace into our lives today. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. Our one defense, our God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I told you that Psalm 22 shows up thanks to Jesus. I've been reading some of the other lament psalms this week. One of my favorites is Psalm 44. 
We've heard it, God, with our own ears. Our ancestors told us about it, about the deeds you did in their days and long, days long past. How you, by your hand, removed all the nations and planted our ancestors. But now you've rejected and humiliated us. You no longer accompany us. You've handed us over to others. You've sold us. We've become a joke to others. And all day long, we see it, oh God. And the voices of others are no help. And so the psalm ends this way. So wake up, exclamation point. <laughs> Why are you sleeping, Lord? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Do not hide your face. For we need you. And so stand up and help us. Save us for the sake of your faithful love. I love that the laments can cry out and say to God, wake up. But that is not a language of despair. That is actually a language of hope. Knowing that God is present with us. And that's why even in our burdens, we can sing this morning. There are 10,000 reasons for our heart to sing. And so would you stand with me this morning? Let's sing that together as we close in worship today. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship his And on 
If you've listened well this morning, things may be going great for you. This may be the best season of your life. Is it? If it is, thanks be to God. Keep your sermons to yourself. <laughs> but if this morning, in God's providence, Job's cry resonated with yours. I love that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who joined this thing and did not get either healthier or wealthier, but began to experience all sorts of heartbreak and even persecution. But again, that writer can say to us and pray for us today. So hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on to the confession that you have made because we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's son. And he is not a high priest who can't sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but instead who's been challenged and tempted and disoriented in every way that we are without sin. So draw near to the throne of favor with confidence and receive mercy and the grace that you need for he is our help. And God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.